All right. For those of you who were not here last week, uh, we want to just reiterate and uh, look at our outline together and look at the first uh, four points before we get to number five, uh, just to kind of refocus on where we were at. Uh, We are basically, and and none of this that I'm about to share with you is on the screen, it's just going to be right here in your lesson until we get to point number five, uh, where we left off last week. But I do want to read the very first uh, portion of our outline again tonight before we jump in, and then look at the four points uh, briefly, and uh, then uh, begin in in, uh, point number five. Beginning with this lesson, we'll temporarily accelerate our study of the book of Revelation until we come to chapter 19. There are two reasons for this. First of all, it would prevent us from getting bogged down in chapters 12 through 18 with 12 through 18 with things that we cannot fully understand or interpret. These chapters symbolically describe some literal events that occurred during the latter part of the tribulation and cannot be understood from this point in time. Second, beginning in chapter 19 when we come to the marriage supper of the lamb, we find literal happenings described with far less symbolism and therefore much easier to interpret. So we talked about last week that uh, 12 to 18 are difficult passages to understand uh, and uh, difficult chapters to understand. Even though we would tackle them, uh, we may not completely understand everything about them because they are symbolic. So when we talk about chapter 12 through chapter number 18, basically what's happening here is that this is a big parenthesis in the book of Revelation. Uh, we went up to chapter number 12 with, uh, uh, for a lot of weeks we've been uh, up to chapter 12 uh, from the very beginning of September, or the, actually the beginning of August, we, we started studying it. And now here we are in the mi- uh, beginning of March and we're just now reaching the culmination here of the things that are going to be happening in heaven. We've dealt with just about everything that's going to happen on earth and now we're about to uh, uh, translate into things that are going to be happening in heaven uh, after the tribulation occurs. But in chapter number 12, there's almost like a break, a parenthesis of events that are symbolically described to us that are going to happen in the latter part of the Great Tribulation. Some of these things are very difficult to understand, but again, we'll do our best to translate them and and understand them the best way that we can. Uh, The second paragraph there, we have studied through the seventh trumpet. Although the trumpet sounds in chapter 11 and verse number 15, the actual events that uh, will occur are not recorded until chapter number 16. The interim chapters 12 through 14 record a lengthy interlude between the sounding of the seventh trumpet and the beginning of the seven vials or bowls of wrath. This parenthetical section describes seven personalities who play important roles during the latter part of the tribulation. All right. So number one, if you were not here last week, uh, if you want to fill these in quickly. uh, Number one, the sun clothed woman. The sun clothed woman. Um, the sun-clothed woman. Now, who did we say that the sun-clothed woman represented? Israel, that's right. The sun-clothed woman represented Israel. And uh, we know that the enemy uh, hates Israel, right? Because of the Messianic line. And so the sun-clothed woman, and you can read all this, I'm not going to take the time to do it, but the sun-clothed woman represents Israel. Number two, the great red dragon The great red dragon. Who did we say the great red dragon was? Satan, the enemy of self. That's right. And so the great red dragon, there is no doubt who that personality is because he was mentioned in in chapter 12 and verse number 9. That old serpent, the devil, the Bible says in Revelation chapter 12 and verse number 9. And so we learned that the red dragon was the the, uh, 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 devil. Where was the devil in 
Uh, Revelation chapter number 12, verses 3 through 4. Do you remember where he was standing? Remember the sun-clothed woman was what? She was pregnant, remember? And she was about to give birth symbolically to who? Jesus, the Messiah. The red, clothed, uh, the red dragon was there trying to eliminate the Messiah, trying to rid him from being born. Do you remember that? And so that's where the red dragon was. And we talked about uh, the three events that took place in history. Matthew chapter number 2, where uh, they tried to eliminate uh, the, the two-year-old and younger children. Do you remember that? Uh, when the wise men came. And then in Luke chapter number 4, we find that Jesus was led to the side of a cliff. And instead of them actually being able to push him off, he was able to wonder and go on uh, and, and, and stay away from that circumstance. And then, of course, in Mark chapter number 15, we found out that the ultimate thing that the enemy tried to do was crucify Jesus. And uh, they, he, he, he would, Jesus was crucified, but not because of the enemy. Jesus was crucified of his own free will. You understand that, right? He died, he was buried, and he rose again. And so the enemy has lost, and the enemy knows that he has lost. So he had the great red dragon. And then number three, the male child. Number three is the male child. Who is the male child? I'm sorry, I missed it. Jesus, that's right. Jesus is the male child. This is literally, in chapter number 12, verses 5 through 6, this is a reiteration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And uh, you can read your notes there. Um, and uh, I'm just going to read that last sentence there uh, on page number two. Since Satan failed to kill the Messiah, he turns his wrath to the who? To the woman who represents who? Israel, the messianic line. And so because Satan could not win, uh, because Satan could not defeat the Messiah, now he turned his wrath on all of Israel. And we talked about that we see that actually happening um, with the anti-Semitism that has been taking place through Hitler, through Pharaoh, and the list goes on and on. And then number four, which is where we ended last week, was Michael. Michael. Michael is the only angel in the Bible who is specifically called an archangel who is the guardian of God's people. Daniel chapter 10 and verse number 13. We also find it in Jude um, uh, verse number 9, where Michael is contending for the body of Moses. And so we have Michael the archangel. And uh, so let's look at the second paragraph there, because this kind of gets us to where we're going uh, to number 5. After Michael defeats Satan and his angel, Satan is cast out of heaven. It is clear from chapter 12, verse number 10, that Satan's defeat in the war in heaven is connected with the birth, ministry, death, and resurrection of Christ. We also see, according to verse number 10, that Satan does have access to heaven to accuse the brethren. We talked about that last week, how that we know that Satan has access to heaven uh, because he has access to accuse the brethren. And we said, can, can you give us proof of that? The proof was in who? Job. That's right. Job was the proof. And so we know that even today that Satan goes to accuse the brethren. And, and that's why sometimes trials come into our lives and all that. But in order for anything to happen to a Christian, what has to happen first? God has to approve it. That's right. God has to allow it. Nothing happens to anything or anyone without God's approval. And that is the ultimate sovereignty of God. 
That is what sovereignty is. It is God being in charge of everything. So what we have to decide when we talk about the sovereignty of God and we talk about events that take place in our life is that are we going to accept the sovereignty of God? Are we going to accept that God is good even though sometimes things do not work out the way that we think they ought to work out in our own personal lives? But may I remind you of this, that all things work together for good to them that... Oh, there's some prerequisites here. It's important that you know that. We often stop at that verse, but all things work together for good, and we like that. But we stop at there, and we forget the last part of that verse. We know that all things work together for good to them who, who love God and, or what? Called according to what? His purpose. Not my purpose. His purpose. And so we have to understand that that is a, the sovereignty of God. Now, uh, let's go to uh, the third paragraph there under Michael. When Satan is no longer able to attack the male child or to accuse the saints, he focuses all of his attention on the woman, Israel, described in verses 13 through 17. As a result of Satan's persecution, Israel will have to fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half from the face of the serpent. Apparently, the fleeing remnant will find asylum in some wilderness place where God will protect and sustain them for those three and one half times or three and a half years. This remnant is undoubtedly the Jews who have turned to Christ because 1217 identifies them as those which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. All right? That brings us to number five, the first beast. The first beast. If you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter number 13. Revelation chapter number 13. We're going to start reading in verse number 1. I know that was a quick overview, but you can certainly take those notes home and study over them. And, of course, you can uh, go online and listen to last week's message if you so desire. Um, Chapter 13, verse number 1. The Bible says this, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of what? blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was likened to a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power. Who is the dragon? Satan. This is very important that we understand this. And his seat. So Satan gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, And his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast, who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. And he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, and them that dwell in heaven. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If any man have an ear, let him hear. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here is the patience and the faith. Of the saints. So, number five, the first beast. The first beast we find in chapter 13, verses 1 
through 10. The beast has already been mentioned in 11.7 as rising from the abyss. We talked about that a couple chapters ago. Therefore, the sea may have been symbolic of the abyss. What did we say the abyss was? The abyss is the Greek word of hell. Literally meaning that it's from the, the, the pit of the earth. And so that's where we find uh, this first beast uh, coming from. He as rising from the abyss. And we talked about that in chapter number 11. And who did we talk about the first beast being? Does anybody remember? The Antichrist. That's right. The first beast does represent the Antichrist. This beast has seven heads and ten horns. And upon his horns, ten crowns. And upon his heads, the name of blasphemy. The name of blasphemy. It's very interesting to me. Um, and I'm going to just kind of allude to this uh, correlation here. Does anybody remember uh, when Jesus was on the cross, what was written on the cross? Somebody just said it. The king of the Jews. The king of the Jews. The Bible also says when Jesus returns, what will be on his vesture? King of kings and Lord of lords. And here we have the first beast who is the Antichrist, who is trying to emulate Jesus Christ. He literally has the name on his head of blasphemy. It's not a secret. It's not a secret who this man is. It's not a secret to the world that this man is against Christ. He is saying that Christ is not who Christ said he was for all of these years. This man is saying he is, in fact, the Messiah that everyone is looking for. But his name, or on his heads, is the name of blasphemy. It's very interesting because of the following that he will have. The seven heads may represent the seven continents over which he rules. And crowned horns may stand for a ten-nation confederacy that gives allegiance to the beast. Now, you say, Pastor, where did you pull that from? Um, <laughs> if you begin to study uh, biblical history, especially in the Old Testament, and the way that when a leader rises up, the way that people follow them, um, it's going to be very interesting, and it's not laid out for us here in the book of Revelation. And that's why um, you see in my notes here that it says, um, the seven heads, what's the next word? May, that's a very important word. Um, represent the seven continents over which he rules. We have seven continents here. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Um, because he's going to rule them. And uh, then the crowned horns may stand for a ten-nation confederacy. If you look through the book of Revelation, or excuse me, through the book of Daniel, you will find a ten-confederate um, nation that will stand with the Antichrist. And uh, it, you say, Pastor, let's go over there and look at it. If we did, we'd be here another twenty-six weeks. Okay. Um, so that's kind of where it goes. And, and you can study the book of Daniel and find uh, that there will be allegiance given to the beast. As great as this person is, he is actually only the agent of Satan. We saw that when we read this, that all of his power comes from Satan. Uh, this is, I, I wrote this wrong and I apologize. The healing of the fatal womb is what's that supposed to say, not woman. 
This is just proof that I do write my own stuff, uh, and I make mistakes. <laughs> um, the uh, healing of the fatal womb in verse 3 may refer to a counterfeit death and resurrection of the beast. I've done a lot of research on this because it's very uh, interesting to me because we've already seen the death of what? The two witnesses, remember that? The two witnesses laid in the street and then they were resurrected, you remember that? And uh, people began to think that uh, God is who God says he is because the two witnesses came back to life. So most scholars believe that the beast will try to emulate that activity. They believe that the beast will actually kill himself and resurrect himself to prove his existence and his power. Now again, I don't know that for sure that that's going to happen, but this womb is, is something of a nature uh, that's important. Or it could symbolically refer to the revival of a world dictator because power was given to all tongues, kindreds, and nations. Look at verse number 7 with me. And it was given unto him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations. It would be much like a Hitler situation where he is given power over everything. Now you say, Pastor, that, that's hard to comprehend that, that there's going to be one dictator that will be able to rule everyone. Uh, but the truth is, is that when people, and, and, and I'm, I never, ever, ever, ever in all of my ministry would ever mix the pulpit with politics uh, by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I just want to make this allusion to you that when someone becomes in power, or gets a position of power, and other people feel empowered, they'll do anything that the person in power tells them to do. Let me say that one more time. When a person gets in power, and they feel like that person empowers them, then they will do anything that that person asks them to do. And so... Here we have, as dictator, this, this Antichrist who is rising up, who is making all these promises to the people. He is, in essence, empowering the people, but he's not giving them any power. He is actually ruling over the kindred, the nation, the tongue. What are they doing? And excuse the lack of a better term, they drank the Kool-Aid. Okay? If you don't understand what that means, just take it a moment. Um, they, they've bought into it. They think that, that he has got it. And again, I'm not mixing because I want to be very cautious here because I know what we're in the midst of. Um, but this is socialism at its finest. Okay? And I'm going to leave it alone. All right. Power was given to all kindreds, tongues, and nations. Th this is what it could be referring to, or it could be referring to an actual uh, death and resurrection. This power will continue for 40 and two months, or it will continue for three and a half years. It is made clear in chapter 13, verses 4 through 6, that he is more than just another world dictator. He, is more, he has more power than just another dictator. He has Literally, the power over people. Now, the reason that he's given so much power, and, and really, honestly, in our, in our day and age, and even in previous day and ages, probably no one has ever had the power that he will have. Because even in instances um, like Hitler and Pharaoh, they were only over a group of people. They were not ruling the whole world. Whereas in this case, uh, the Antichrist will literally be ruling the whole world. 
And uh, so he, he is not just another world dictator. He is a very powerful, very powerful person. And the reason is, is because he's getting his power from who? Satan, that's right. It is a, listen, and I want to be very careful about this because I, I know in, in the spirit world you can write a fine line. But, but he is literally receiving spiritual, but in a negative sense, power. He is being empowered that way. And so it, it is in a, in a very negative uh, sense, all right? The wording of verse 9, if any man will have an ear, let him hear, means to pay close attention to what is said in verse number 10. Let's read verse number 10 again. He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Here it is. Here is the patience and faith of the saints. God has always been, always, always, always been an eye for an eye. You read it through all of the Bible, an eye for an eye. Okay? And so here, look what it says. It says, he that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity. He that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. And then he says this, have some patience, don't worry. Have some patience, don't worry. The Bible is very clear. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. That's right. We like to put our names there. But it's actually the Lord. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, not saith Lee, right? And so we just have to allow God to do what God is going to do. Now, let me ask you a question. Let's go back to the sovereignty of God. Does God know what's going on? God does know what's going on. And God is not going to allow anything to get out of hand. This is the orchestration of the events that God has designed from the very beginning of the world. Because, because just like the flood, when we talked about that ultimate catastrophe in the, in the Word of God, God gave grace. I mean, Noah preached for a hundred plus years. God was extending grace and people continued to reject it. So what happened? Judgment came. Just like now, God's grace has been given to us for more than 2,000 years. But eventually, what has to happen? Judgment. There has to be judgment. By the way, I want you to really understand this because I don't think we completely uh, grasp it. We often talk about the wonderful thought of a new heaven and a new earth. In order for that to happen, the old one has to go away. Do you understand that? And many people have asked me many times, what's the new earth going to be like, Pastor? The only thing that I can allude it to is the before the fall. It's going to be perfect. Just what Adam and Eve experienced before the fall. That is what it's going to be like. And um, it's going to be amazing. But in order for that to happen, the old has to pass away. The message is clear. When God's plan is complete, this is, what, this is what should be encouraging to you. When God's plan is complete, the captor will be taken captive and divinely disposed of. It's the only way I know how to put it. <laughs> the, the captor will be captive and he will be divinely disposed of. In other words, let's put it like this. How many of you are a Christian here tonight? How many of you are saved by the grace of God? Guess what? It doesn't matter if you've never won a ball game in your life, you're a winner. It doesn't matter if you feel like that your whole world and life has been a defeat, you're a winner. Right? 
Because the captor will be taken captive and will be divinely disposed of. Where is it going to be disposed to? The lake of fire. The lake of fire. And he knows that. So in God, but, but it's all in God's order. It's all in God's plan. Number six. The second beast. Wait a minute, there's a second beast? Yes, there's a second beast. Chapter 13, verse number 11. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him. And causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast, whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast. Saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak... And cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. And that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. (laughs) That's interesting. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. For it is the number of man, and his number is six hundred, three score, and six. You know that number, don't you? Six, six, six. So the second beast. So we have Satan, and we have the Antichrist. And now we have a second beast. I I want to stop here because I think it's very important that you understand where we're at. What has Satan always wanted? Or let me rephrase that. Who has Satan always wanted to be? God. He's always wanted to be God. So what is he trying to do? He is trying to emulate God. Literally, what has happened here, and, and, and please don't take this the wrong way, and, 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 and I want you to see it, but God has somewhat in given him freedom and empowered him at this point. He has loosed him from the abyss. So because of that, now the enemy feels like he can take over, and the only way to do that is to emulate the beast. So we have Satan. Then we have the Antichrist. And we'll call the third beast the prophet. And it literally emulates Christ in several ways. Because this second beast, this is not in your notes. This second beast emulates someone that was very important to Christ. His name was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the voice Crying in the wilderness. That's right. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. That's what John the Baptist said. 
Here we have the second beast who comes and he sets up an idol. He says, you guys should set up an idol worship because look, the first beast of the Antichrist is who he says he is. And he is literally the Antichrist cheerleader. But he does something that John the Baptist never did. He becomes the enforcer. He becomes, you have to follow or you will die. Jesus said, whosoever will may come. Jesus never forces himself on anyone. The enemy would not have a following unless he forced himself on someone. Are you following me? Huge difference. The second beast. In six, chapter 16 and verse number 13, chapter 19 and verse number 20, chapter 20 and verse number 10, this second beast is called the false prophet. Thus we have the unholy trinity. We have the devil, we have the beast, and we have the false prophet. The unholy trinity. At no time does the second beast or false prophet promote himself. Instead, according to verses 15 through 17, what is his purpose? Somebody tell me. According to verses 15 through 17 that we just read, what is the second beast's purpose? His purpose is to promote the beast, the first beast. That's right. His job is to promote the first beast. So we have the first beast that has set up his throne. We have the second beast whose job is to promote the first beast. It's kind of like, excuse me, Brother Mike, I'm sorry for this. It's kind of like Aflac. Okay? I have no clue who the owner of Aflac is. No idea. But I know his duck. Do you know his duck? Come on, be honest with me. All right? I've never met a speaking duck. Except for the Aflac one. I don't know who the owner is. The duck doesn't promote the owner, or excuse me, the duck doesn't, doesn't uh, 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 promote himself. The duck promotes the product, right? And, and, and the reason that we all know that duck is because the first time it ever came on television, I remember, I do. You say, Pastor, you're weird, I know. <laughs> but I remember the first time that duck came on TV, I turned and I said, where did they get a talking duck at? And the first thing that I did, this is the honest truth. I'm telling you the truth. This is the honest truth. I went and found out what Aflac was all about. That's exactly what the second beast's job is. Not to promote himself, but to promote the first beast. To tell you and to get you so inquisitive and so bought into the person, the, second, or the first beast. That's his job. And he will do it by any means necessary any means necessary the false prophet will not be content to control people through spiritual deceit he will also institute measures to have complete control of commerce producing a system whereby one can buy or sell only by worshiping the image of the beast and thereby receiving his mark so he wants to have complete control over everything the mark is described in chapter 13 and verse number 18 at 603 score and 6 or 666. Numerous attempts have been made uh, to interpret this number using the numerical equivalence of letters in the Hebrew or the Greek so that the mystery might be solved. What does 666 mean? 
And there are, if you were to type in that into your Google uh, browser, what does 666 mean? Um, you would spend the next 25 years trying to read it all. Everyone has an opinion. But this is my thought behind this. The Bible does not tell us anything about it except for the fact that it's the number of man. So why would I want to try to dive into it more? This is what I know. That there is going to have to be a mark in order to buy or sell. That mark is either going to be in your forehead or in your hand. And that mark can actually be a couple of different things according to the word of God. Look at it with me. Verse number 18. Uh, let, let me back up here. Hold on just a second. Uh, here it is. Verse number 17. And that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name or the number. Do you see that? There's three different things that you can get. You get the mark, you get the name, or you get the number. Now, that's another trivial thought. Why are there three different options? I, I have my opinions about it, but I'm not going to share them with you because I cannot find a biblical concrete verse definition for you. But I want you to think about this. Just as in today's world... So will it be in the end times. There are going to be society differences. There will also be those that follow closer and those that follow further from the beast. And I believe that in some way this could possibly be the three different levels of notoriety. But again, I, I can't guarantee that. And, there, and, and, and where I come up with that is back in the Old Testament where they were receiving, um, uh, they, they were receiving crowns or they were receiving medals or some type of gifts based upon their level of notoriety and their level of service to the king. So, three different marks, three different ideas here. But ultimately, if you do not take the mark of the beast, what's going to happen to you? You will die. Ultimately, that's where we're at. Okay? However, no one in our day knows or can figure out the meaning of this number. But the day will come when it will clearly identify the beast as the Antichrist. Thus, Revelation 13 gives us much insight into the Great Tribulation period. It will be a time of a a one-world ruler, one-government-sanctioned religion, the worship of the beast, and one-world economic system. Those who resist the world dictator who is empowered by Satan will be executed. As has already been mentioned, it will be the most difficult time ever to be a Christian. Number seven, the lamb. The lamb. We're going to read chapter number 14. We're going to read it quickly. We don't have a lot of time left, but this is the seventh personality of the tribulation. And I looked, and lo, the lamb stood on the mount of Zion, 
and with him 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven as the voice of many waters and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers harping with their harps. And they sung as it were a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled, excuse me, with women. For they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they were without fault before the throne of God. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of the waters. And there followed another angel, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen that great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever. And they gave no rest day or night, who worshiped the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit that they may rest from their labors and their works to follow them. And I looked and behold a white cloud and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time has come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which, the, uh, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud voice to him that had the uh, sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, and her grapes were fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city and blood came out of the winepress even unto the horse's bridles by the space of a thousand and six hundred furlongs. And everybody took a deep breath. What... A scene that has just unfolded. It is literally the annihilation of the earth. But in the midst of it all, we find the Lamb. The Lamb. Chapter 14 seems to be the answer to two questions raised in the two previous chapters. What happens to those who refuse to receive the mark of the beast and are killed? And what happens to the beast, his false prophet, and his followers? Verse 1 tells us of the 144,000, which seem to be the same group mentioned in chapter number 7, verses 4 through 8, that went out to evangelize during the Great Tribulation. And since they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne and before the four beasts and the elders, they must be in heaven 
Their work of witnessing has been completed. Somebody asked me last week about this. They said, where are the 144,000? They are done. Their job is done. How did they get back to heaven? The Bible is not clear about that. The Bible is not 100% clear. There are several ideas about that. But ultimately what we need to know is that the 144,000 are now back in heaven. This group is further described as they which were not defiled of women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. Verse number 4. Reference to the fact that they were never married or were sexually pure could mean that during the tribulation they could not lead normal married lives because of their dedication to the Lord. We didn't know a lot about the 144,000, do you remember? We just knew that they were 12,000 from the 12 tribes. We didn't know much about them. Again, that's why this is kind of a parenthetical section. We're learning more about different characters that are going through the tribulation. So now we know this 144,000, because someone actually asked me that. They said, Pastor, uh, the 144,000 that are going out, can they be married? Can they have children? So forth and so on. This answers that question for us. They had one job. What was their job? Evangelize. That's right. They were to evangelize. And so they, they could not uh, get married. They were sexually pure. Uh, in other words, they really could not lead normal married lives because of their dedication to the Lord. In chapter 14, verses 6 through 7, God's last call for repentance goes out through an angel to a world that persists in rejecting him and that now openly denies him. Verse 6 and 7 Um, We see that the angel flew in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel. Having the everlasting gospel. Literally preaching the last invitation or the last thought uh, to a world that is dying. Now it is not the last invitation of the Bible. Because when we get to the last chapter of the book of Revelation. The last invitation goes out. But it is not to anyone that's involved in the tribulation. Or in the millennium. Or in any other portion of the... um, uh, in times, that invitation is given to those that read it. It is the last invitation to us in the Word of God to repent. And so, after reading all of the book of Revelation, I can't, um, and understanding it, I can't imagine why anyone would not accept Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. So, this is God's last call during the tribulation for repentance. It is clear from verse 8, the rest of the chapter 14 is like a table of contents for the remainder of the book. Another angel announces the fall of Babylon, um, which is God's name for the economic and political system of the beast. And uh, is described in chapter 17 and chapter 18. If you want to jump ahead, you can read that. But literally, uh, what we have here is a table of contents for the things that are to come. So we have the fall of Babylon. We have the fall of the economic and the political system. The third angel announces the terrible judgment that will take place upon those who worship the beast and receive his mark in verses 9 through 11. Um, It says that, verse number 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. They They will be imparted unto the wrath of God. After the Lord's stern warning to those who follow the beast, God has a word of comfort for those who will not yield to the beast, but rather keep the commandments of God. Verses 12 through 13, do you see that? He said, the patience of the saints. He said, he will write, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. These are people that accept Christ during the tribulation. You understand that? 
Um, these are tribulational saints. Is it going to be a good time to be a Christian? No, it is not going to be a good time to be a Christian. These people will endure things that none of us could even imagine. Couldn't even imagine enduring. So, he gives a word of comfort. Since it is evident that the beast can only be resisted at the expense of one's own life, the words of comfort in verse 13, that the Lord will allow them to rest in the Spirit and that their works do follow them, is given. Next, John sees a white cloud. This has been interesting to me. And upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his hand a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. Uh, there can be little doubt as to the identity of the person pictured here. He is certainly the Lord Jesus Christ with a sickle in his hand, ready to begin judgment upon the earth. This is reminiscent of our Lord's parable, and we don't have time to go over it because I'm almost out of time. In Matthew chapter number 13, you should go and read that, um, the parable um, there in Matthew chapter 13. So this will uh, begin the ending judgment of the earth. Revelation 14.20 gives us a cl- quick glimpse of the battle of Armageddon. The 1,600 furlongs or 180 miles may be li- literal, designating the area of judgment. This picture is the shedding of blood on an astronomical scale, a slaughter beyond anything the world has ever known. With all this in mind, Once again, our motivation is to be sharing Jesus with those that are in need of him and thanking the Lord that we do not have to partake in such astronomical tragedy. We'll talk more about the Battle of Armageddon in weeks to come. And, uh, but you've often heard that there will be blood up to the horse's bridle, and that's where we get it from in Revelation chapter number 14 and verse number 20. And uh, it is going to be a... A terrible, terrible bloodshed. But can I tell you something? We're still, we still have the victory. We still have the victory. We look at this and, 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 and I've had people say this to me, Pastor, I don't understand why God is going to be a part of such a bloodshed. Can I remind you of something that for from the very beginning of time, once the fall happened, God has always given us a way to salvation. Always. And even through the tribulation, He still allows salvation. It is now we've reached a point, and I... I, I it's hard for me to say this, but we've reached the point of no return. And there comes a point in that. When the 144,000 are taken back to heaven, grace has ended. It's over. And now what's to happen? Judgment. We talk about grace, and grace is a wonderful thing. But grace ends, and judgment begins. And then what happens after that? After grace ends, judgment begins, for lack of a better term, heavenly bliss is on the way. It's on the way. Let not your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And what? Receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There it is. It's all about heaven. You know how you can let not your heart be troubled? Because you believe in God. That's how you can do it. And he has prepared the place for us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for another wonderful evening together. Thank you for the word of God. Thank you for allowing us to understand and study. And uh, Lord, I pray that we'll be encouraged. Lord, uh, give us a great rest of the week. We look forward to all the things happening in the upcoming weeks, uh, what you're going to do in this place. And Lord, we just love you so much. In Jesus' name.